0: Alright guys, good morning. If we can, open up to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Once again, my name is Kenson. I have the honor of being a pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location. And I look forward to seeing all of you guys next Sunday at our Bridgeport location. We're excited to host you guys, Uh, even though I know that for some of you it might take you two hours to get there. Uh, But nonetheless, looking forward to having you guys there uh, with us. It'll be a fun time. A great time just to be one family here on the near south side, uh, worshiping together. So, Romans chapter 2, so what we're going to do here is I'm going to read our verses, and then we're going to just jump right in, okay? So Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man... You who judge those who practice such things and and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. A story went viral last year when a 32-year-old South Carolina woman was arrested for DUI. She was driving 100 miles per hour when the limit was 60 miles per hour. She was twice over the limit for the DUI, DUI limit, and she, she also had cocaine in the car. Now normally this is not a very noteworthy story, as sad as it is in Chicago, right? But in South Carolina it wasn't noteworthy, It was what, what was noteworthy was what happened after she failed the sobriety test that was noteworthy. That as she was being arrested, she begins to explain why she doesn't deserve the punishment. And this was all caught in the camera inside the police car. She said this, I graduated from a really good, a really good university. I was almost a valedictorian. I graduated with a 3.8 in my high school and got a scholarship to my college. I was an all-American cheerleader. I mean, I didn't miss a beat my whole life. I've never been to jail. Please, I don't know what it's like. I'm a pretty girl. Please don't make me go in there. And if this wasn't enough, she gets to the police station and tells all the officers this. I'm a white, clean girl. The cop's like, what does this have to do with anything? She says, you're a cop. You should know based on the people that come in this room. Wow, okay, wow. Now, I shared a story with you because what we see in this woman and what we'll see in our passage is that when self-righteousness takes a hold of our hearts, it will always show itself in condemning judgment. You know, for this woman, even though she had all this mounting evidence declaring that she was guilty, she never saw it that way. She never acknowledges that she was wrong. As a matter of fact, not only was she not wrong, but she was too good. She was too accomplished. She was too pretty. That jail was for those other people not like her. This is a picture of self-righteousness. It's the belief that the way I live and the way that I behave, that it makes me better than everyone else. You know, in our passage, Paul confronts this self-righteousness and condemning judgment within the church. Now, some context to remind you guys. The chapters we're in Romans right now is all about God's condemnation and wrath towards the sin of humanity. And we're going to be in these chapters for a very long time. And the reason Paul is doing this is because he is laying out the good news of Jesus for the church. But in order for us to see the good news that will come in Romans chapter 8, we need to understand the bad news of our condition to appreciate what the good news really is. So in chapter 1 last week, Paul talks about the judgment of God towards sin and idolatry, and he lists off a bunch of sins like homosexuality and any other sexual sins that are outside the covenant of marriage between husband and wife. And included in that list as well too were the sins of malice, murder, strife, deceit gossip, haughtiness, boastfulness, inventors of evil, the foolish, the ruthless, and so on. And this is the end of chapter one. Now, as this letter is being read out loud, in that historical context, this letter will have been read to the congregation like it is today, to the Roman church, and Paul knows that as this is being read out, as chapter one is finishing, that many of the believers sitting in the seats, many Jewish believers would have been Amen! Serves them right. Thank God I'm not like those Gentiles or those sinners outside these walls and I'm nothing like them at all. Well, we know that Paul right now is singling out the Jewish believers because later in chapter 2 verse 17, he calls them out. He says, you who call yourself Jews. And Paul does this because he knows of all the people in the church The Jewish believers had the most reason to feel the most self-righteous because they didn't commit the sins of chapter 1. They had the law, they had the Torah, and they followed it. So they assumed that we're off the hook from God's wrath. Paul wants to make it super clear in chapter 2 that they are not off the hook Neither are we off the hook because Paul right now is confronting religious people. He is confronting people like, the, like us, regular church attendees. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judge judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Another way to understand the verse here. If the list of sins in chapter 1 did not make you humble or compassionate, but instead it made you prideful and condescending towards others, your judgment condemns you because it exposes your hypocrisy. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, to be clear, This passage does not mean that we should never use discernment. It does not mean that we shall never make a moral critique. We must do that. God expects it. He wants us as Christ followers to know the difference between right and wrong, light and darkness. He calls us to disciple our children in his ways. We are to know the gospel. We are to know right and wrong. The judging the Bible consistently forbids is the judgment that condemns. It's a judgment that is hypercritical, that is harsh, that wants to punish, that avoids others that are not like who we are. This is not what we're supposed to do. Yet, this is exactly what Christians are known for. You know, many years ago, a Christian research group called Barna came out with a book called Unchristian. It was a book that collected thousands of responses of what people perceived of Christians. And let me show you the top six of what was perceived. Close to 90% of the people surveyed saw Christians as being judgmental, that this was a person who was prideful, quick to find fault in others, and graceless. The overall conclusion of the book is that Christians have become more famous for what they are against than what they are for. And I am convinced that all six of these negative perceptions is because Christians simply will not repent of their self righteousness because we love our self righteousness. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel good to stay in our holy huddle. It makes us feel good to say that I'm nothing like those unbelievers and sinners outside these church walls. It makes us feel good to say that I don't sin like you or I don't sin as much as you and it gives me permission to power up and stand over you. Let me ask you, what are you known for? Are you known to be quick to judge? Are you known to be harsh and condescending? You know, to understand what's what's going on here, let me just give you three insights to judgment that's going to move us along for our message here. So the three points are this. First, we wrongly judge Because we're self-righteous. Second, God rightly judges because he is righteous. And finally, Jesus was judged. So first, we wrongly judge because we're self-righteous. You know, Paul says over and over again to these Jewish believers, you practice the very same things. That all the sins that I laid out against humanity in chapter 1 are the very same sins that you commit. Uh, Verses 1 to 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you escape the judgment of God? Now, here's the problem with what Paul is saying right now. The Jews didn't practice these things. They weren't sleeping around. They weren't murdering. They weren't being disobedient to their parents. They obeyed the law. So what's going on here? Paul is talking about their hearts. That even though you might not be physically bowing your knee to an idol, your heart has. Even though you might not be getting in bed with someone else, your heart has. Even though you might not have murdered someone, your heart has. And in verse 5, Paul calls it out that all of this comes from the hardness of your heart. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impotent, which means unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be saved. Paul isn't just talking about their works, he is getting to their hearts. And Paul, right now, is echoing back to the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, where all sin always begins at the heart. Here's Jesus on anger, Matthew 5, 21 to 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus on lust, Matthew 5, 27 to 23. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The root of sin does not start with behavior. It always starts in the heart. This is why Paul can say to the religious, he can say to us, the church attendees, that you're just as guilty as those who practice because you have the same sin within your own heart. The only difference between you and those outside these walls is that you hide it better. That you hide it in the secret places of your heart. That you hide it in your thought life. And this is the reason the self-righteous are so quick to judge others because they do not do business at the heart level. Therefore, the self-righteous, it's all about the outward. It's all about behavior. Why? Because frankly, it's just easier. That it's so much easier to say that I haven't murdered anyone today than to say, well, I haven't been angry today. I haven't been greedy today. I haven't been lustful. So it becomes easy for the self-righteous to judge because our standard of righteousness is not the one set by the Bible, is not the one set by Christ, it's the one set by ourselves. And because of that, there will always be someone that we can look down at. For example, we yell at our kids for doing the very same silly things that we did as kids. That we say to them, right, when I was your age, you know, I was smarter than that. Okay, I don't say it all the time, but I say it sometimes to my kids. We, we look at the parents in the restaurant or in the airplane. I can't believe they let their kids misbehave like that. Or, or we see the homeless, and our, third, our first thoughts are, you know, what bad choices led them to where they are today? Or, or we hear about someone who's in massive debt. You know, how can they be so unwise in how they handle their finances? My finances are in order. You know, what's wrong with them? Or you see those who are not as smart or as accomplished as you. You know, why are they so lazy? They should do something more with their lives. A self-righteous heart will always condemningly judge because they have decided to put themselves in the place of God. And this is a heart that is at the root of racism, sexism, and any other isms that is responsible to diminish and devalue people. Now, How do you know if this self-righteous heart is true of you? Let me give you two, two ways to evaluate yourself. So first, you are more disgusted by the sin of others than you are by your sins. That you're harsh and critical when someone messes up, but when you mess up, you're much more compassionate, you're understanding, you're forgiving. You give yourself a self-hug, right? Like, it's okay. It's okay. You had a really hard week, you know. You know, people understand. You find all kinds of excuses for your sin. Yet for others, you lack empathy and compassion, and you could care less about their burden of their story. When they mess up, when they slight you, it, you know, it, it's wrath and fury and nothing else. Do you see? You are living with a double standard. You're holding people up here, but you're holding yourself down here and giving yourself a lot of grace and compassion. Is this true of you? Here's a second way to evaluate yourself. You know this true. This, this heart is true of you, this self-righteous heart is true of you, if you do not confess and repent daily of your sins. Now I'm getting somewhere, ain't I? If you are not confessing daily and repenting of your sins daily, you're not doing this for one of two reasons. It's either because you don't recognize the severity of sin or because you have taken God for granted. Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? To presume is to expect God to be nice to you. It's to expect God to wink at your sin, or it's to assume that just because he has not yet punished your habitual sin, right, that it's not that big of a deal when you sin. No. Every day we choose not to confess and repent. We mock God's kindness. We stand in judgment over God's holiness, and if we can stand over God, it ain't no big deal to stand over other people. When we don't confess daily, we're not learning what it means to depend on the grace of God and to grow in humility. So what are we doing instead? We are trusting every day in our strength, in our wisdom, in our finances, in our capability, and it will only breed pride and it will only bring about one kind of fruit. We will condemningly judge others. We are wrong to judge because we are self-righteous. Here's the second insight. God rightly judges because he is righteous. Paul affirms this two times. Verse two, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse five, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, for some of you guys, it might bring up a question. All right, you know, fine. Kenson, just for the last seven minutes, you've told me that I can't judge. But what's up here? Now it says that God can judge. You know, what's going on? This seems like a double standard, hypocritical. What's happening? All right, smarty pants. Let me tell you why, okay? Let me tell you why it's okay for God to judge. First, God can judge because God is creator and sustainer of everything. There is nothing in our life and nothing around us that God does not say, mine. And because everything and every one of us belong to him, we are all accountable to him. Secondly, we should want God to judge because it means that evil never goes unpunished. And there is a lot of evil and injustice that goes unpunished in our world. And the good news of a God who judges is that even if evil might get past the human courts of justice, no evil at any time will ever get past God. And finally, God can and should judge because he is righteous. He is perfectly good and loving and altogether sufficient in himself. So unlike us, when we judge out of vengeance or out of pride or out of insecurity or out of being slighted, God is never tempted to judge in that way. His judgment will always be consistent. It will always be fair. Verse 11, for God shows no no partiality. We are all judged equally before God. So it doesn't matter your cultural background, your family background, your intellect, your race, your nationality. God's judgment will always be fair because he doesn't judge us on the externals. He judges us on the secret motivations and intentions in our hearts. Only God can be fair to judge because he knows and sees everything. And what we read in our verses is that when God judges us, it's according to our works. Verse six, He will render to each one according to His works. Now, once again, Paul is not separating motivation from action because our works always give evidence to what's going on in our hearts. And we actually see this in verses seven and eight. Verses seven and eight, Paul continues to explain how God judges. Verse seven, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 8, but for those who are seek- self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay, so in verses 7 and 8, Paul gives us the verdict and consequences of God's judgment. Verse 7 is positive. Verse 8 is negative. Verse 7, When God judges you and your life demonstrates a life of persistently doing good to others, you will will have eternal life. Verse 8, when God judges you and your life demonstrates a life of persistent disobedience, you will be given wrath and fury. Now notice, in these two verses, Paul doesn't just mention the works that are judged, but also the motivation for them. Look again at verse 7. The reason you do good is because you do so for glory, honor, honor, and immortality. Now, we read that, and that sounds really self serving. It is not self serving that these are God-given desires to want this because we all want meaning. We all want significance. We all want honor. We all want security. We are made in the image of God to walk with him forever. It is good to desire glory, honor, and immortality. These are good things if we seek them from the creator and not from created things. In other words, in verse 7, when we do good, And we're rewarded with eternal life it's because we are seeking after god for our worth for our acceptance for our honor and in verse 8 those who do not obey the truth they are punished with wrath because they are self-seeking that they put their glory before god's glory our works and heart always go hand in hand so when God said when God judges us in verse 6 he starts with the outward and then drills right down to the heart and motives that he brings to light our secret life our thought life the life that no one else ever gets to see he will hold us accountable for all of it that in verse 1, none of us will have an excuse. From the irreligious in chapter 1 to the religious in chapter 2, we are all guilty, we are all equals before the cross because we are all sinners before a righteous God. This is why Paul says in verses 1 and 2 that when we condemningly judge others, we are actually condemningly judging ourselves because our hearts are absolutely no different. You know many years ago an American theologian Francis Schaeffer gave a sermon on these verses in Romans 2 and he said that Romans 2 is about an invisible tape recorder that God has put around your neck now for you younger folks who don't know what this is let me show you what a tape recorder is okay I grew up with this stuff now you can't feel it you can't see it but it's there around your neck for your entire life and on judgment day God is going to reach around your neck and grab that invisible tape recorder, and play it. And just so you know that he is the fairest judge there is, he's not going to judge you according to the Bible or according to Christ. He's going to judge you by your own words. So he's going to play the tape recorder, and here you are, and here's God, and you both will hear all the standards that you have placed for all the people around you, your kids, your kids your spouse, your co-workers, your boss, your business partner, you know, your your customers, your, your pastor, not me, but Rafe, your nanny, the person who cuts you off on the road. And God is going to judge you in this way. Every standard that you've placed on other people, I'm going to measure you by that standard. Do you know what's going to happen to us None of us will be able to stand on Judgment Day because none of us can even stand against our very own words, let alone God's perfect standard, which is actually what we're going to be measured against. Do you guys see here? We are absolutely lost. We are doomed. We are without excuse. None of us can escape the judgment of God. All of us, from the irreligious to the religious. So, where is the hope? And this leads us to the third point. Jesus was judged. Jesus was judged. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Even in the thick of Paul laying out the consequences of sin and the deserved wrath and judgment of God for all humanity, there is still a sliver of good news. That what we see in verse 4 is that it tells us that God's desire is not to condemn, but is to show you His mercy and kindness. You know, when we read Romans chapter 1 and 2, it basically retells the, the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. That this is the story of a man who has two sons. And his, one of his sons, his younger son, rebels against the father and demands his inheritance. In essence, saying to his dad, that father, I wish you were dead. I want my, more, my, I want my money more than I want to be with you. So this younger son rejects his father outright and he spends his inheritance on all the worldly pleasures that he can think of. Eventually he's broke, he's miserable, and he's eating with pigs. And when this son comes walking home, Do you remember what happens? The father runs to him, embraces him, and welcomes him home. He throws the most lavish party for him. Now on the outside of this party, you have the older son who sees this and he's fuming, and he's angry. Why does the younger son get this great party after he's shamed the father so much? I, the older son, I have followed all the rules. I have stayed by my father's side, and yet I've not even gotten a small pig to celebrate with my friends. The older son believes that he deserves the party because he has followed all the rules. He should be the one getting the party. Have you guys noticed The older son is the self-righteous person. It's Romans 2. And the younger son is Romans chapter 1. And in both these stories, both sons are separated from the father. Both of them are lost. And here's the good news. The father loves them both and pursues them both and is ready to receive them both Only if they would come to him, only if they would admit that they need him. In the same way, God is ready to welcome the religious and irreligious back to the family, but they must come the same way. It's only through the cross. It's when we admit our need for grace and mercy and forsake our sin like the younger son and forsake our sense of self-righteousness like the older son, will he forgive us. Because it's on that cross that judge was judged. That Jesus came down from heaven, lived a perfectly righteous life in thought and deed, and he was not judgmental towards people, but forgave people. That even at his final breath, when he was crying out on the cross, he was crying out for us, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus had every right to condemningly judge sinners, but he does not. Instead, he chooses to save sinners. Paul says in verse 4 that when you see the riches of God's kindness, it should lead you to repentance because it's in God's kindness, it acts as the very dam that is holding up the flood of punishment that we deserve. Did you guys know that? That it is his kindness that holds it all back. And it's this kindness that God does so that we would come to him in repentance. This is the reason why God doesn't strike us dead where we deserve. It's not because he's weak. It's not because he's indifferent. It's not because he's giving permission for us to sin. No, he does so so that you would know how much he loves you. You know, in our house, mealtimes are the worst. You know, our three-year-old and two-year-old eat like animals. Even though we've taught them manners, even though we give them a fork and a spoon, they could care less. They use their hands, they fling through the food everywhere, they get their grubby hands on everywhere. Our house is a mess. That's why we haven't hosted small group in years, okay? Our house is a mess. Now, my wife though. She loves a clean house. She grew up in a clean house when we got married. She taught me what it meant to be a clean man. You know, she's a very clean person. But here we are, living in a messy house. And day after day, meal after meal, the kids totally, totally disrespect her in this way. So here's the question. Why doesn't my wife just pour on my kids the wrath of motherhood? Why doesn't she just do that? Instead, what does she do? After dinner, she reads to them, plays with them, hugs and kisses them. What's going on here? The reason my wife doesn't pour her wrath out is because she loves her sons more than having a clean room. In the same way, God loves us more than proving how wrong and foolish we are. He loves us more than showing how strong his wrath is. This is why God may endure months years, decades of stubbornness and resistance. Why? Is so that you would come to him in repentance. And this is the kind of good news that should drop all of us on our knees because the only reason that we can claim God as our father and have eternal life is because he chose to be kind to us. That the only reason that you're able to spend all those years walking and indulging in worldly pleasures, walking in rebellion and resistance, resistance to God, and God didn't strike you dead where you were, is because he wanted wanted to give you time to experience his loving and saving grace. That is his kindness at play. But the only reason God could do this is because he was not kind to his one and only son. That it's on the cross, Jesus was forsaken, condemned, and judged, and it's on the cross God did not hold back the flood of his wrath, and Jesus absorbed all of it for our sake. So that now when God judges us, we would be declared righteous and beautiful because his son was righteous and beautiful. And can I say, this is the kind, this is the kind of kindness that we see from God that should kill any desire to judge others because it's on the cross where it should make us humble, because we now know that Jesus had to be punished and judged for our sins. So what right do I have to stand over anyone else? It's also on the cross that it makes us forgiving and loving because Jesus extended forgiveness to us when he could have judged us. It's in Christ, you see, mercy triumphs over judgment. Kindness triumphs over judgment. In Christ, grace triumphs over judgment amen amen so what's an application for us here let me give you one instead of judging others help others instead of judging help others in every case of judgment we decide in our hearts that we're going to go ahead and leave that person in sin and never give them a chance to receive grace so we gossip And gossip is judging someone without giving them the chance to change. Or we don't correct or speak truth into that person's life either because we don't believe that they can change or they're not worth my time. Judgment creates this line that says, better than, more righteous than on this side and everyone else over on that side. Grace has no such line. So, when we condemningly judge others, we are proactively contradicting the love and acceptance that God offers to all. Have you noticed that people who judge almost never help, and people who help almost never judge? Because when you help, your judgment will disappear because you're now in their shoes. You're now carrying their burdens. Let me ask you, who are you going to be? Are you going to be someone who judges? Are you going to be someone who helps? Who are you going to be? John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to judge, he came to save. Let me close with this. On September 6, 2018, Amber Geiger, an off-duty patrol officer in Dallas, she entered the apartment of 26-year-old accountant Bodum John, and she thought that she was entering into her own apartment and mistook John for a burglar, shooting, and killing him. You know, this past week, she was found guilty of murder, and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Bodem John's brother, Brandt, was allowed to give a victim impact statement, and he addressed Amber Geiger directly. And this is what he said to her. Let me show it to you. If you truly are sorry, I can speak for myself, I forgive, and I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say it again, I'm speaking for myself, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I presently want the best for you. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. And I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ will be the best thing that Bodham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? please. And here was the hug. Church, let me ask you, will we judge others and condemn them? Or will we extend grace so that everyone can know the kindness of Jesus Christ? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, forgive us and the self-righteousness that we breed in our own hearts. That, God, how we find our worth and value and what we can do in our abilities, in our education, in our talents. That, Father, we pride pride ourselves on the things that your grace has given to us, and we use it, Lord, to bash it on other people, to stand on other people, God. Forgive us for being so selfish. Forgive us for being so, so hypocritical. God, we thank you that you are a God who is kind, tolerant, and patient with us so that we can now be kind, tolerant, and patient with others. Father, I pray that you would help us as Christ followers, help us as a church to be known not as people who condemningly judge, but to be known as people where mercy triumphs over judgment. God, help us to be known by our love as your son calls us to. Father, we thank you that it's your son Jesus Christ who was judged, who was condemned, so that, Father, now before your eyes, we are loved and accepted and embraced. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.